Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. On the line in the UK, he tells me that from the roof of his house, he can see the mountain of Snowdonia. He is smiling. He is funny. He is mad. And he sounds like a hell of a character we've never met in person. But everybody in the, in the UK seems to know this guy who's only been flying for 11 years. His name is Barney Woodhead. Uh, when I asked him, do you have any kind of claim, claim of fame? Do you have any party trick? He said to me, most people in the UK know me as the wild man of Borneo. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. So cool to have you, Barney. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm just waking up, just having my coffee. Life's good. The sun's not shining today, but we've had probably the best weather that we've ever, ever had for the last two months whilst being fucking locked down in our little boxes. I'm looking forward to getting out. I'm excited to go out getting out. I'm a bit displaced by everything that's going on, but my belief in life means that it's all going to go away eventually. Just like Donald Trump says, it's going to just disappear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did it there. As you were getting to know each other uh, yesterday on a phone call and this morning, we were speaking about everything from from family to to conspiracy theories to dispelling the mysteries. You've got a hell of a beautiful story to tell. I chatted to you yesterday on the recommendation of Charles Norwood. You, you told me, oh, I don't think I really have got a story that's much value. And then you started to tell me the story. And it's a brilliant story. BPRA, probably the most famous training program for rating paragliders in the world. You're going to tell me all about that. But first, when we started to speak of people that we know and we were discussing Felix Rodriguez and Uli Prince, then I said, oh, I did a podcast with Philippe uh, Brewers. And you said, oh, yes, I remember meeting him for the first time. Tell us about that moment. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> the first time I met Philippe Brewers. I was at um, a takeoff in Taucho, Tenerife. There was a port because there was a competition going on. There was a port at launch. And the door burst open and out came this incredible cloud of marijuana smoke, followed by Philip Rowers walking out in his fancy dress kit. And he's like, oh, this guy's pretty fucking cool. <laughs> so and, and then we then we had a bit of a conversation. And uh, yeah, I mean, nothing really to report there. But there's some wacky people in paragliding, which is sort of what I really like. And, and, and as well, some people are a bit. You, you don't realize who they are. And then when you get to know them, you realize this guy's really cool in his own nerdy way or in his own extrovert or introverted way. Yeah, uh, in, incredible. Love the sport. And I love the people. And, and it's all about the people, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, very, very little about what we fly and how we fly and how far we fly. It's about the characters and the and the moments and the parties. And you were speaking about introverts, extroverts. And we spoke of Uli Prince. And you said he's one of my best friends. We do all sorts of adventures together. And you and me could not be more different in personalities. We, we, in a strange way, we, 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 we're the exact opposite. Uli is like this guy who is ultra precise. If I ask him a question, he has researched it. 
I don't even know where he gets his time from or whether he's got the brain the size of a fucking planet. He just gets his information in his own words. He optimizes. What Uli does superbly well is he optimizes everything. And, and me and him spend a lot of time together in the mountains, ski touring, hike and fly. With the cross country, most of the time, he is like miles out in front and I am always playing catch up. But then that's his world number three at the moment and he's happy to be world number three. And I say to him, Uli, Uli, why don't you just like win? And he says, oh, well, you know, and I say, what's going on with that? And he said, well, I, I've tried to win a, on, a, on a couple of times. And what happens is you change your flying tactics. And he would rather be in the top 10 consistently going for gold. And then what happens when you go for gold? Loads of people out there that go for gold. And what happens is they're out the front. They are exposed, in the words of Russ Ogden. They are exposed. They, they, they forge in their own line. And, and then they end up either being unlucky or making a mistake, and then they lose out, and then they come in 70th. And he really does not like that position of being 70th. He would rather play a conservative game, and he's very, very good at it. The difference is, when you go cross-country flying with him, is the exact opposite. He is out the front all the time, where there's no consequence. He's out the front, and everybody else is playing catch-up. Okay, I'm not one of these pilots, but there's some fucking good pilots that we fly with. Damien DeBance, uh, Olivia Henry, uh, Bertrand Cole. You know, they're all big, big hitters in the terms of distance and speed and all the rest of it. And uh, he's always out the front. I've got a lot of respect for that guy. But yeah, we are in a strange way, opposites, but the same. So yeah, I mean, my three years out in Annecy, he's become best friend, confidant, somebody who I look up to. Uh, and he's really, he's a very humble guy, actually, Izuli. The most incredible thing about some of these people is that they are prepared to invest time in you, where you think, well, there's just little me, what do I know, what can I bring to the table? And in actual fact, a lot of these guys, like Russ Ogden, Guy Anderson, Uli Prince, and there's a whole, I, I mean, you, I could just talk forever on different people, but they are willing to give up their time to make you safe, to help you improve uh, to, and to help you reach your goals. You talked before about the BPRA and I'm trying not to go off too much on many tangents. That's the whole essence of what we're doing in the BPRA. We are sharing information. You've hit straight onto the point of the BPRA and that's what I'd like to put as the, let's say the main part of this podcast is explaining to us what it is. Um, it's amazing. If I understand it correctly, it's a kind of philosophy. It's a kind of sharing. It's a kind of mentoring. It's a kind of giving of people's time. The results have spoken for themselves. Just the bottom line for the listeners out there, uh, Theo and Harry, <laughs> Harry goes and breaks the declared world record at 510 kilometers and then goes and wins the European champs. And this is from a simple little thought out mentoring program where yourself and uh, Marlon decided let's do something slightly alternative and it's not rocket science you yourself have broken um some uk distance records you were telling me a little earlier how you came really really close to winning a world record on a task but it was just a few kilometers short of it you live a very very crazy life it seems you live in the countryside in the uk and have some block houses you were telling me about your your sons joe and charlie 21 and 24 years old when I met Theo at 19 years old, he was doing a helicopter on his Enzo 3. 
And I just couldn't believe, or an Enzo too, I can't remember which one, but he was helicoptering his Enzo. And I was like, what the fuck is that? It's, it was amazing to watch. Such confidence, so self-assured as a youngster, so focused in their, their game. Let's go on to the BPRA. Explain it to me, what it is. Okay, so the British Paragliding Racing Academy, which is the BPRA, was something that came from a conversation that me and a guy called Malin Lobb dreamt up. I think we're in my house, and I'm not precious about ownership. I'm precious about friendships. And, and, it, and it wasn't necessarily his idea or my idea, but we both felt that something could be done. And what came out of it, we thought, okay, let's create a group of pilots that are going to um, help and support each other so that we can learn from each other and share that, that learning. And that sort of philosophy came by from a few years previous when a group of pilots, which was me, uh, Mark Wilson, Phil Wallbank and Phil Colbert, we were just learning to fly. Mark had been flying for quite a few years before, as had Phil Wallbank. But me and Phil Colbert, we were new to the game. And I was really hungry for knowledge. What we did, we set out to win the UK Cross Country League as a club, the Pennine Soaring Club. We had this philosophy between us. We would meet the night before. We would talk on the phone. We would plan our days. Um, and we would fly together. As it happened, we did that for three years and we won the UK XE League three times in a year. And it wasn't because we were the best pilots. And this is the important thing. It wasn't that we were the best. In fact, we were miles behind the best, you know, people like Mark Watts and people like that. The thing is, we were organized, but we were open. And we were open to sharing what we knew. We were open to sharing the experience of the flight on the day. There was no egos involved. Uh, there was no, I'm going to fly further than you. We set our plan and we flew together, disciplined on radios. And, you know, we'd find ourselves invariably taking off um, in the UK where we fly a lot of downwind tasks because it's windy. And then we'd just run out of land, end up at the coast, and that would be it. Many, many flights ended up at the coast and everyone then got to know us as the Pennine Posse uh, or the Pennine Bad Lads. Yeah, uh, that's where this sort of philosophy started. And then we took that into the BPRA. And at the time, the members of the British team were people like Guy Anderson, uh, Russ Ogden, uh, Kirsty Cameron, Emmett Casanova, uh, people like that. And, and Russ and Guy... They became our mums and dads, basically. They came into the BPRA and they poured out information, learning experiences. We had this core of young, new pilots really wanting to learn how to become race pilots. And we had these guys, Russ and, uh, uh, Russ and Guy Anderson, who were willing to take us, well, not me because... I don't give a fuck about racing anymore, to be honest. But I was quite happy to go along for the ride because I'm interested in learning and, and how that manifests itself and how people respond. And, and everyone's got their own little story. Everyone's got their own problems. And, 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 and Russ was great. Russ would stand up and deliver his sermon 
to the to the kids, let's call them the kids. We would be sat in awe and they would be telling us what to do, how to think. And flying's not that difficult, right? What is difficult is is, is well, you know what happens. You get in a you get in a banging climb, you get up to cloud base, and then what you do, you're in front of everybody, and then you get your dick out and start playing with it. And then you think, oh, look at me, I'm a fucking sky god. And you zoom off and then you bomb out, right? You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And what Russ brought to the table was a very simple method of getting high, staying high, and just observing what everybody else was doing and and getting in a really strong position whereby everybody else was helping you stay high. You can do the race thing at the last minute. You can get your dick out on the final glide. That's fine. But don't get your dick out until you're on final glide and start playing with it because it's going to end up in tears. And so what Russ did, he brought that, broke it down. He didn't say it like that, obviously. He's a bit more professional than me. But um, so he became... Him and Guy became our mentor. Young Theo, I met him when he was 16, and he was he was flying a Peak 4, and I was flying a Peak 4, and we were on a tank somewhere in Spain or Portugal, whatever. He was only 16, and he was up my ass all fucking day, and I was watching this guy who could have easily overtaken me because the thing about Theo is a brilliant climber. He turns beautifully, really smooth, but he climbs very, very well. And so he's always in a good position. And I remember landing this young lad, he's only 16, and I got hold of him and I said, you, I said, you can be fucking world champion one day. You want it. And if you're prepared to put in the hard work, I've had that conversation with him and he can't remember that conversation, strangely. Not that that matters. It doesn't matter a shit to me, but... The whole process is we wanted to provide a framework of support and information and help for the people that really wanted to learn and push themselves and basically reach, you know, reach for the stars, find the dreams, you know, pull it all off. And, 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 and Theo, three years later, became world champion. I think you, you mixed up Harry and Theo earlier on. It was Harry who got the world record last year and Theo who did the european championship thing and it might have been a bit of a one-trick pony however the truth is a 16 year old who'd been flying for probably three years did another three years and became european champion what that tells us is that it is possible to fast track learning okay you can't there's some things that you don't want to fast track right um but it is possible if you're prepared to put in the work. And it's a beautiful story about Theo because he's such a lovely lad. He's only he's only young and he's got he's got another 20 years before he's good at telling stories. But he's fucking brilliant at flying. He's got a really good, humble attitude. We don't know what goes on inside the heads of these people. But what I really believe is that if you can help somebody to arrive at this position of self-belief, yes, I can do that. Yes, I can be fucking world champion if I want to be. If you can help them realize that, then they are then free to go and do whatever it is they want. It's the same with kids. You know, you want to be a fireman, you want to be a, well, let's not say a politician, eh? 
Um, <laughs> you want to be a Bill Gates? Well, good fucking luck to you, mate. But the truth is, the truth is, we're this biological, chemical, electrical uh, machine that's super complex, full of molecules, but we've got all these opportunities. And, and I've grown up from a poor background, and I didn't see all my opportunities. I saw them later on in life. And I've always felt that if you can help your children, no, this could be fucking you. This could be really. And, and in terms of paragliding, I've had so many emails and calls of people saying, oh, can I join the BPRA? Can I join the BPRA? I've heard about it. It sounds really just what I'm looking for. And unfortunately, unless you are a UK pilot, in other words, that's on your, uh, it's the same for the British team, it's the same for the African team. You know, your main identity, your passport, whatever, is got to be African, it's got to be British, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. So we can only take British people. But there's an opportunity here for any group of pilots anywhere in the world to set up their own little club and, and literally mirror or copy what we've done. What we've done isn't special. We've got paragliding professionals. We've got really cool, accomplished pilots coming in and working with us, facilitating, and that's the important thing. We're not teaching. We're facilitating this sort of idea that Malin's very, very good at this. He's very systematic. If you will, he has really been the spearhead of working out a sort of curriculum, if you will, of what we should be doing. And we've pulled in people like Thomas Thurilat. Um, we've had sessions with him. And how can we take what Thomas has done with people like Kriegel, Charles Kaz, uh, Seiko, Faruko, Kakuko, whatever. <laughs> I can't say it bloody <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like all these people are working with Thomas. So so we, we, we approach Thomas and he's given us snippets. We put that into the equation. But that's what we do. Essentially, we, we try and instill confidence and support and we bring in paragliding professionals. We do exercises, training camps. SIV is a really big aspect because what we want, and this is, you know, obviously Theo pulling helicopters on his Enzo too, he's gone out there really ballsy, which you are when you're young, and experimented, but it's that sort of confidence. You know, if you're confident on your glider, if you feel good about yourself in turbulent air, if you've been around really good pilots who have been saying, no, don't do that, what were you looking at? You know, I mean, Russ's mantra is, what does he say? Uh, observation, application, discipline. That's Russ's mantra. See what's going on, apply what you know, and don't get your fucking dick out. Stay disciplined, and 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 that's the winning formula. And that's all that Russ is doing, really. But he's doing it superbly well. He's passing that message over, and I I I I think that if you're in Venezuela, if you're in South Africa, if you're in Australia, you can form this group because. And it doesn't matter what level you're at, because you, what you will find is that people are interested. You know, Russ buzzes. He really buzzes off the BPRA. You know, he doesn't get fucking paid for it, but he's buzzing off it. Why is he buzzing off it? I don't know. He enjoys the learning. He enjoys the camaraderie. Maybe it helps him with his game. And, and, and my message is really that if you, 
know that go on launch don't don't hassle people just you know at the beginning of the day but find them at the end of the day when they've had a good day and speak to them approach them and speak to them and and and, and ask ask them the questions that you need to know the answers to and get them involved get involved i mean that, that that's it that's it it's really simple yeah, I love it. Uh, it's 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 super simple, which which is often the, the the magic mix in the formula. You spoke of a food example. I, I think of of the the right ingredients being thrown into a pot and making a beautiful lentil curry. You don't need much. It's about sharing. It's about people who know what they're doing, sharing with people who are less experienced. Maybe that you and Melon together, for example, you are a big mouth. You're a guy like me. We can talk to anybody. We can laugh with anybody. We can enjoy. We can inspire people. Uh, my dick often comes out. Then you need Melon, who is very organized and who's the guy who is putting a syllabus together and needs some kind of structure here. Give us a, some kind of idea of what the syllabus entails. Is there a syllabus? Let's get this guy to talk this week. Let's have this guy think this up. Or How does it work? So it is structured. Um, it, at the beginning, we, we approached association, the BHPA, the British Hang Gliding and Paragliding Association, begging them for money. I drew up this massive budget and I'd, I'd spoken to a few people and I wanted, we, we created this model. The long and short of it is the model didn't really work because we wanted to go big time. But what we ended up with, we ended up with £2,000, a sum of £2,000. And we're looking at this fucking little pile of money thinking, what the fuck can we do with 2,000 quid? Not an awful lot. Now, that funding has gone up over the last few years. Now we get £4,000 a year. But £4,000 a year doesn't spread itself well amongst 30 pilots. So how do we utilize that and what is the syllabus? Well, one of the first things that me and Malin decided was that the dark side of our sport is that people get hurt, people get injured. And so we wanted it to be safe. We're not training providers. We don't teach people how to fly. But we wanted to highlight how important safety was because we didn't want people to obviously die or even injure themselves because it, it just makes the whole thing shit, obviously. SIV is a big part of what we do. We want everybody to good glider skills so that they know what to do in turbulent air they know what to do when the glider turns into a fucking ball of washing above the head after that what else have we got we started by doing the bpra boot camp so the way that works is we have the british championships say it's in portugal one year and a week before the championships we run the boot camp so everybody that's going to the comp we turn up a week early, we get Russ or Guy or both, and we run tasks, very simple tasks. The, the money that we get, we, we sort of do a concessionary rate. We, we, we negotiate prices for SIV, but we're negotiating with Malin, <laughs> who provides SIV, him and Fabian. So we, we get a bit of a rate there. We get a bit of a discount there, but then we, we also expect pilots to contribute. So we use some of the money. I think at the moment we do 50-50 funding. So if you pay for half your SIV, we'll, we'll, we'll put in the rest. But obviously we're limited on places because like two, four grand doesn't go very far. And, and, and then the other bits of the money go towards something as mundane as a minibus. <laughs> so when we turn up a week early... We've got a minibus that takes us up to launch. For the kids that bomb out, 
we've got a minibus that will sweep them up and take them back. But that's that's just the beginning of the process. So we'll set a task at the beginning of the day. We'll do the task. We've got Russ on the radio. We've got Guy on the radio saying, hey, Barney, what the fuck are you doing over there? You know, the thermal's over here. What, what, you know, you're not doing it. So all the time, Russ and Guy are picking us up on where we're going wrong. So in the evening, and we use, well, at the time it was called Duorama. Harry's, Harry Bloxham's quite a whiz. And we get Harry to get all the tracks off the trackers. And then Russ dissects the day. It might have been a two-hour task, and we'll sit through the task, accelerated, watching it all on screen. It's like, okay, Jess, what were you thinking when you were out there exposed on your own? What were you doing when, you know, 500 metres away, someone's going up at six metres and you're pissing about in a two-metre climb? What are you thinking? It's a really simple do and review. So in terms of syllabus, SIV, foundation stone let's get people we, we let's get them all safe we know that they've done that side of the training and we're happy that they can fly their gliders on top of that we do other training for example we want people to understand how to use their equipment and i'm not talking about basic stuff i'm talking about trimming your glider because as gliders become more and more susceptible to change. You know, we're flying around in Formula One cars that need maintenance. Whether it's a Niviuk or whether it's a, an Ozone, it doesn't really matter. Gliders need to be kept in tune. And so we have equipment that's there for everybody to use. We teach people how to use it. We teach people not only to measure the lines, but also a little bit about trimming and we encourage them to speak to it's in Kenny's about sharing information go and speak to the Viperini brothers and ask them what they're doing with their gliders whether they pull in the tips back or whether they're accelerating and ask them why because how I trim my glider is different to how you trim it because I might not want a super aggressive nose on my glider you might want that I might be a little bit, you know, I might want a little bit more flow. And so understanding the trim of a glider and, and, and understanding yourself is very, very important. Um, what you want to get out of the experience. So we help people learn very simple things like, you know, like we'll teach you how to splice a line so that if you're on launch and you fucking, you know, you're stressing out because you've snapped a line and the task is going to kick off in 40 minutes. You need to know how to make a line and get into the air quick. Otherwise, you've fucked your day. So just little things like that. We've also extended things out, as I was saying before, to Thomas Thurilap, who's an incredible psychologist. He knows how to find your weak spots and then he knows how to work those weak spots. That's what Thomas is very, very good at. And we've tried to take a little bit. I mean, Thomas is super expensive, right? He lives in Switzerland. He's at the top of his game. We sat drinking coffee with him and like, you know, three coffees, like 26 euros in Interlaken. <laughs> you know, I don't mind paying him, but four grand doesn't go very far. So all we've been able to do with Thomas so far is take a little bit of what he does and bring it in. We, we do our SIV. We do our boot camps. We do the do and review and we do some supportive training. What I'd really want to do to push things forward is to get someone like Thomas on board, maybe get Thomas to train. We're trying to train. I'm, I'm trying to persuade Hugh Miller, who's also a psychologist, bloody good pilot, really nice guy, 
I'm trying to persuade him we would happily pay for someone like Hugh to go and spend a full day with Thomas and bring that into our group. But Hugh's obviously got his own life, he's got his own commitments, and, and at the moment, at the moment, that's not on the radar. But something like that would be a, another great step forward because our goal is to put the British team on the podium um, 22, where the Worlds is going to be held in France, which is my backyard. That's what we want. We want to be on the podium. We're not there yet. I think we're ranked a fifth nation. When the BPRA started, we were the ninth nation in the world. So we have come up a notch. Russ is sat pretty at the number one spot. He's been there since last year. Good for him. Great. And that's not necessarily down to the BPRA. Certainly not Theo's success or Harry's success or Russ's success. But I'd like to think, I'd like to think that we're helping people achieve their goals, even if it's just a little bit. And I know the formula works and I know that it's it's a sort of it's a sort of thing that can be copied and, and, and reproduced anywhere. You're obviously doing something that's that's winning here. You, you're doing something that's super simplistic, but super effective. The results are speaking for themselves. <laughs> it's, it's not just anybody who's coming along and within a couple of years is winning a European champs. Nah. That doesn't happen like that, you know. That's that's not a fluke. That's not a, that's not a potluck. There's something going right here. You've got some kind of magic. You've got some kind of success that's happening, and it sounds like it's got a lot to do with generosity, with sharing, and with something really simple. How many people do you accept on such a program, and how much do they effectively have to front out to do that? You're obviously getting many, many, as you've said, more applications than acceptance. So um, we, we have to cap our BPRA membership at 30 people because beyond that, beyond that, it, it's unmanageable because we don't have the resources. And 30 is a nice number. Out of those 30 pilots, some of them come to the boot camp, but they're not, they're not relying on our resources per se, but they're joining in. You might get, I mean, this year, obviously, with this bloody coronavirus bullshit, we, we, we can't run our boot camp because, in fact, the British Championships, was we were going to hold the British Championships in France at Grand Bonon. The week before, we were going to do the boot camp um, and we were going to do some SIV. I think we had maybe 12 or 13 people um, on that boot camp um, and, and we're asking them to contribute 50% of the costs, basically. If, if we do... We, we, we plan to do two or three days SIV, depending on the weather and the rest of the time we would have done task days like we discussed before. We felt that we just had enough budget to do that. Yeah, how, how much are having people to, to put in? Well, they have to put in a week of time first and that comes at a cost. And then they have to contribute two, three hundred quid, which is 50 percent of the the. You've got Fabian Blanco. He's possibly, I, I, I think, is the best SIV structure in the world. And it's not that there's something about Fabian. And what it is, I think, Fabian has this incredible ability to understand where you're at. He speaks to you and he instantly knows what kind of person you are. He knows if you're a scared pilot or if you're all balls and no skill, or, or whether you are a technical pilot. When he speaks to you, he instantly gets that. 
and and so you you have this. I mean, rapport is a French word, but Fabian's got the rapport. He really has, but not just on the verbal sense, on a spiritual sense. That might sound a bit airy fairy, but he really does get people. And and he's trained his group of people like Malin to work in the same way. So when you go to fly, you really get him. You get you get him like a a blue chip service. And uh, so so yeah, I've sort of gone off on the tangent a bit. I hope I've answered your question. Uh, you can go for the next one. I'm <laughs> sorry. A quick question: What do you do in your life? What do I do in my life? I'm a dreamer. I'm a real dreamer. Last year, I uh, dreamt up this idea of what I wanted to do, and and so I have many many dreams. And 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 when I'm thinking about the dreams, what they're going to be for next year, or what they're going to be in six months' time. I really get. I really start to imagine what that's like. So last year, I, I did this thing where I, I said, "Right, I'm just going to go and hike and fly through Europe. I want to get to Slovenia and go right the way through and do." So, so I jumped in the car. I started in France. I did some hike and flies in France, and then I went through Switzerland. I went into Austria. I went into Slovenia, Italy, and did some really beautiful hike and flies. So, what do I do in life? Well. I earn a bit of money <laughs> doing building jobs. I fit kitchens, I fit bathrooms, I do roof work. I'm a, I'm a general builder on paper. I'm an engineering graduate with a, a, a master's in microelectronics and telecommunication systems. But that is so fucking boring. Nobody wants to do that, really, do they? So <laughs> what do I do in life? I've arrived at a position that I'm 50 years old. Uh, I've got enough money i haven't got a lot uh, i've got a very small mortgage i live cheaply I do work that i love i work for clients that i respect i do a good job and i charge what i feel is really good value for money but i'm not cheap and the rest of the time i dream and i dream about you know i'm an ex-climber i'm a, a mountaineer from the past not a very good one but I love being in the mountains. I have this, when I'm in the mountains, I have this sort of expansive thing going on where I can, and I can really be alone in, in the mountains for days and days and days. And I really love that. I love the silence of the mountains, the tranquility. And, you know, you go to places like Nepal in the Himalayas, the Indian Himalayas, and, you know, that whether you believe that the mountains are the gods or whether the gods reside in the mountains, there is something about being in big open spaces where we all feel a spiritual connection. I don't think I'm unique in that at all. So when you say, what do I do in life? It's not the work. It's not the BPRA. It's this wanting to go into expansive places and feel that spiritual connection with nature with stuff that you can't monetize a fucking mountain, right? Unless you put a cable car up it. If you put a cable car up it, I'm not going there. And it's really that simple. And the people who live in the mountains actually believe that they wear that life in their outward expression. In other words, when you meet somebody who lives in the mountains, you can see, you can see the kind of life that they've had in their eyes and in the face. And the first time I went to the Himalayas back in, I, I don't know, I was like 19. Uh, so 31 years ago, I was trekking. And, and that's what I connected with. My plan for this year, 
I've got a 500 mile trip planned to go from in, in the northwest of Scotland, north of the Great Glen. There's some beautiful pointy mountains, not the rounded ones further south. Travel from the uh, west side to the to the northeast corner to John O'Groats. And it's about 500 miles. And the plan was to take my single skin, my Volviv kit and my bicycle because it rains all the fucking time in Scotland. The second dream for this year is to go to Pakistan late summer and do some pretty extreme hike and fly, let's say climb and fly, in Pakistan. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit displaced. I'm, a, I'm not just displaced because of coronavirus. Everybody's displaced. But I find myself in a position now where I'm really trying to evaluate whether I have the right to go on long-haul flights, knowing what I know about pollution and knowing what I know about global warming, and, and asking myself the question, do I just say, fuck it, let's go to Colombia in January, let's go to Pakistan in September, let's go to Bia, India, in October, and I'm sorry to piss on people's fire, but the truth is, you know, if we're to... Uh, if we're to um, think about our children and their children's futures, then we've got to start thinking about these things. You know, it's really easy to say, oh, not now. I don't have to do it. Nobody gives a shit about the environment anyway. And, and, and let's be honest, global warming is just another conspiracy theory. That's bullshit. Um, we know that's true. We, 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 if we ask ourselves the question, whether we're two years old or 10 years old or 100 years old, we know inside what the truth is. We actually believe that. I know it's a long-winded answer, but I'm, I, I'm at a turning point in my life where I, I, I'm really checking in on my dreams and, and asking myself, are these acceptable dreams without traveling too far? So I might change my mind about Pakistan. I might not go to Bia um, this year. I'll tell you something about beer very quickly. Uh, beer is a great place for most people who've been there. It's a fabulous place, easy to fly. You can go balls deep if you want to, or you can just fly the front ridge. But there's some absolutely incredible people that, that, that go to beer. And, uh, and one of them, I have to say, my biggest hero and biggest influence in this, in this crazy world is John Sylvester. I have so much admir admiration for that guy. He has pioneered um, incredible routes through uh, some really ballsy terrain um, and is incredibly humble. One of my favourite memories of being in beer isn't the flying. One of my favourite memories is being in that landing field with my best friend, Mark Wilson, the guy who I admire the most in the sport, John Sylvester, and another guy who I've got a lot of admiration for, and he's a really funny, crazy guy, Eddie Colfox. And just, you know, drinking chai and smoking a joint, uh, smoking some nice charis in, in, in the landing field. It's nothing to do with flying. But those moments at the end of the day when we've had a great day and we've been getting nice and relaxed, those moments are the golden moments that really enhance the dreams that uh, I, I've created. Well, Barney Woodhead, I want to tell you, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to you. You've given a monologue second to none. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I am known for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
But it's all good shit. You haven't come with any crap. Sure, you uh, sometimes uh, take a while to get to the point. But what you've said has actually been extremely valuable. You haven't come with some absolute crap and just uh, beaten around the bush. You've, you've actually made a, a few very, very valuable points. And of course, you need to paint the picture with an extra bit of color around. Granted, that's your style and that makes you unique and that makes you individual. You were talking about, we were talking uh, yesterday, getting to know each other about authenticity and the lack of authenticity. Uh, you've mentioned right now and a decision I, I made after doing a podcast with a friend of mine, Tony Pat, about uh, renewable energies and about uh, what we can do to kind of calm down a bit. I've also made a decision. I'm only doing one, maximum two long haul flights in a year from now on. That's it for the foreseeable future. We need to to come to terms with ourselves, with why we fly. Um, I ask you, what do you do in your life? Meaning, what do you do professionally? How do you spend your time? <laughs> and your first answer was, I'm a dreamer. That's right. I am a dreamer. And, and, and one, thing, one thing that I do have that I always want to give to other people is passion. And it's not just passion for the sport. It's passion for values and it's passion for relationships between people. Uh, my dad was a painter. He painted bridges. But he always said, I, I said, why do you paint bridges, dad? And he said, bridges are the metaphor that connects people. And without connection between people, there is no meaning in life. If I can't share an experience with Uli or Mark or John Sylvester, then my experience is limited to just me. When I share it, it's more than double more than triple the experience. And if I want to say anything today, if you can share what you have with other people, whether it's flying, maybe not maybe not in the bedroom. I, I don't think I'd like to share my girlfriend with anybody. <laughs> but if you can share with people what you know and what you believe is right, that comes back. And it doesn't just come back. It comes back again and again and again and again. And it's taken me a long time to realize that. But that is what's going on. So, yeah, that's how I live my life with dreams and with sharing. Well, bloody said. It's absolutely so. To the point, a little earlier you were telling me and I was shocked that if you went to park your car down the road and walk in a forest, you have a very high chance that your tires would be slashed. I'm thinking, what the fuck? That's what goes on. And unfortunately, I, I believe a lot of people, we, we're all a little bit lost from time to time. You know, sometimes it comes out, it, it comes out in the wrong way and people make mistakes. The, the strange thing about this COVID situation is that a lot of people are breaking the rules. There's even more people that are sticking to the rules. But what really fucking gets my back up is when the rule breakers go out and break the rules, but don't put anybody at risk, that they are then chastised ostracized publicly and worse if i'd go and park my car in the in the lake district or in in wales there's a good chance i'd get my car scratched or tires slashed and you think why if i'm not putting anybody at risk what is that about and it's about resentment it's about resentment and i think you know i i saw when this covid thing first came out i saw two old people um just park up near me and this little old woman got into a car and I could tell from her body language that she felt she was doing something wrong. And I went over to her and I said, I'm really glad you've come here in your car and gone for a walk 
because none of this makes sense. Oh, I was really worried that, you know, because we've driven from out of town, we've come here and I'm saying, no, enjoy the countryside. There's nobody else here for fuck's sake. You know, there's no time in life for uh, harboring resentment towards other people for doing what they believe is right. And I think if you sit down and, and think about what is right, you're not going to harm anybody by what you believe is right, then fucking go out and do it. We are allowed to go walking, <laughs> running or cycling between six in the morning and nine in the morning. That's it. What's it to anybody if I'm in the middle of nowhere here going flying? And people might say I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Is this about, you know, rolling out control and vaccines? Who knows? But, you know, at the end of the day, all us pilots, we, we have one thing in common, and that is we believe in being free. And this scenario goes against all that. We know it's okay to go flying. And let's hope we don't have to take a fucking vaccine up our asses and, and walk around with trackers. Whatever the conspiracy theories say we're going to get next, Freedom is really important, and fuck all the conspiracy theories at the end of the day. We know how to be free. If it's one thing we do know how to do, it's, it's being free. Freedom really is an internal thing. We either believe that we are trapped, or we believe that we are free. So what I say to people is take your freedom in the way that you know is, and just fucking go out and do it. And if you say you can't, go out and do it anyway. I'm a rebel, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely barney let's end it right here and now i say thank you very very much for joining us uh, on the podcast it was really super having you uh look forward to doing this again soon and look forward to actually meeting you in person and going dee, 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 dee. that would be really cool man on the radio what the fuck are you doing over there in that two meter climb when i'm in a six meter climb come on get your ass over that would be really cool man thank you very much for the experience I'll be the one in the six meter climb. I'll sniffle that thing out and you'll be struggling around in a 1.2. That's right. Okay, dude. Well, listen, I'm really, really grateful. Um, I was very nervous that there's something in there for everybody to listen to and enjoy. And, and maybe if you take one thing away from it, then that's great. Then I've done my job. Fantastic. We're going to be on that podium at the Worlds. British team, watch this best. I'm going to watch that place. Cheers, mate. Ciao, man. <laughs>